Good morning. Did you notice that the most irritating man in the world, I mean interesting man in the world, wore two watches? What's that all about? I guess it was just like bling or something. But I do want to encourage you men. Um, it is a treat to have Preston Sprinkle uh, speaking at our men's retreat. Uh, he's the author of a number of books and just on the front edge uh, in his influence on a lot of contemporary and very important topics. Very, very solid in his devotion to the Lord, his faithfulness to the Word, he is going to be a, just a, a great, great speaker and uh, be used of God in our lives. So I hope that you will go out of your way to make sure that you join us for the men's retreat. I will be there, and I hope to get to know you. If, if we don't know each other that well, it will be a great, great chance to hang out some more. I want to talk about our vision statement, which is uh, behind me, inspiring Christ-likeness. Inspiring Christ-likeness. That's about showing Jesus to others. Showing others Jesus Christ in us. But that begins with him inspiring us. His life inspiring our life. His heart inspiring our heart. His words inspiring our words. His thoughts, our thoughts. His perspective, our perspective. I didn't understand that. Although that's the way I lived my life. I mean, when I was a young man, um, I had lots of heroes. They weren't superheroes. I wouldn't have even called them heroes, but they were people that I admired and emulated. You've probably had people in your life that you looked over at and you said, wow, that person has it all together. High school for me was all about trying to be accepted. didn't take a rocket scientist for me to recognize the people who were surrounded by others, outstanding in their appearance, seemingly clever, great athletes. Those were the people that inspire because you think, wow, if that's, if that's what it takes, if they've got that X factor, I want that too. And I had, I had many. Like I said, some were friends, some athletes, some were teachers, but all seemed to be beyond my reach. And here I was trying to fashion myself in their likeness, but it wasn't, it wasn't possible. It was impossible. And the crazy thing was, it was artificial. I was posing as somebody else. And worst of all, it deepened my dissatisfaction with myself. 
it made me very aware that I didn't have an X factor. So, I don't know, maybe those were the problems of a young kid, but they were real to me. There were so many things I wasn't, and what I was, I couldn't tell you, <laughs> if you had asked me. I would have given you some story, something to hide the truth that I desperately wanted you to like me, but for the life of me, I had no idea why you would. To be honest, I liked myself, but I had to. I was all I had. And because I did, I tried to give myself the best of everything, everything I could get. The approval, the acceptance, the applause of the people that I admired and looked up to. I did what they did. I copied what they liked. And generally, I tried to be what I thought they would approve, accept, and applaud. Of course, I didn't understand that then. I understand it now. I didn't have the smarts or the tools to analyze my own urges and motivations back then. And besides, the last thing I wanted to do was face the real me and confront the gap between the real me and the person that I wanted to be and was trying to be, that mash of those heroes, or what I've called heroes, those people that I admired, that I was trying to copy and emulate and be like, But what I really knew was that I was just trying to be somebody other than me. I was a poser. Although I wouldn't have called myself a poser back then either. And I was pretty successful. I kind of lived in a fear of being found out that people would know the real me. Because if you knew the real me, then you wouldn't like me. But no one did find out, no one would find out, but I did live in that fear because I knew I was not who I wanted to be and who I was, even though I liked, who I liked was not who I wanted to be. Well, that's enough about me to know that Early in 1972, at the age of 19, my life crashed with a perceived rejection that was so big to me. And I should stop and add that I had suffered rejection before, and it was always very painful. Rejection is painful. And I've figured out that it is so painful because I fail to see why you don't love me as much as I love myself. But anyway, this rejection was so abrupt and humiliating that I entered into a period of isolation and darkness and questioning and self-examination, and it led me to a canal bank in the middle of the night 
after a long walk and a decision to die. Not that kind of death, I'm too chicken for that, but to die to myself because I realized that in a lot of ways, I just had nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and so, yeah, I had been haunted by, by Jesus, and uh, so it was there that I, I really gave my life up and turned my life over to him. And you've heard me say before, but I think it bears repeating because I actually still live by this. I, I, I didn't know what to do or where to go at that moment, you know, when I made that decision, uh, there were significant things happening in me, but as I was walking home, I remember, what do I do now, Lord? And I realized that, you know, the answer was, you live every moment by faith. You ask you, the, the question, how can I do this by faith in you? instead of faith in me or faith in someone else. That's pretty simple. And yet it's really very profound. You should never outgrow it. And you live that way. How can I do this by faith? You know, not, not by rote, not mechanically, not as I've been taught to do it, not as I learned to do it, not as others do it. How can I do this by faith? And you do it by faith because Jesus Christ has saved you. You're, you're swallowed up in that grace, that goodness, that love, that you turn to him again and again and again, and you never outgrow it. You never outgrow it. You see, Jesus became my hero. Even though I couldn't reach up to all these others that I was trying to emulate, Jesus became my hero because he reached down to me. And that is so telltale about Jesus Christ and the gospel and what this whole thing is about. It's so fundamental. It's so central. It's so essential. He reaches down. He who is above all. He who is higher than all. He who is hero of all. He reached down to me where I was. That's a profound grace to me. And it was to Paul, too. It was to the Apostle Paul, too. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy. Before we read, we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through the first part of 18. I want to show you something, so just listen to me for a moment. You could, in verse 14, by the way, throughout these verses, grace, faith, and love, that language of grace, faith, and love, is, is used. It's, 
It's like the seasoning of what he's saying. The background of what he is talking to Timothy about when he writes this letter. And by the way, Paul is, he's in the, so to speak, twilight of his ministry. This is the, of, of all his letters that we know of, that we have, this is the second to the last letter. First and second Timothy are the last letters that Paul wrote. Timothy is his beloved son, not his biological, hereditary son, his son by faith. Paul has poured his life into Timothy. Timothy is his protege. Timothy is his legacy. And he writes this letter to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, probably the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Paul spent 18 months in Ephesus. He wrote Corinthians from Ephesus. Highly significant city. And Paul has told Timothy, Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus to straighten things out. To lead the church there, to grow the people up. It's in your hands. And he's written this letter because Timothy is dealing with false teaching. Now, false teaching can be of a whole range of things where you just you lose sight. Ultimately, you lose sight of the center, the heart, the essence of the gospel. And we're going to see Paul shooting the truth that he wants Timothy to grasp and we need to grasp through his own life. He magnifies the grace of God in his life, the gospel grounded in Jesus Christ and the vocation that we have, that Timothy has, that Paul has, that you and I have. And that's in verses 14, 15, and 16. So let me read for us, and you read on and we'll start at verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship you could use the word the ministry from God that is by faith. The aim, that is the target, the bullseye, the aim of our charge, ours, mine, and yours, Timothy, and all of ours, the charge, that which has been handed on to us from higher authority, these are our marching orders. 
The aim of our charge is love. Now, you know, you, you hear me talk a lot about love. I've told you, but maybe, maybe you haven't heard me say this in a while, but I hadn't been here very long at Grace. It was 2001. And people will fill out communication cards. Maybe you filled one out this morning. And a communication card came to me, and it was unsigned, and, they, and it just said this, Love, love, love. What's all this about love? Now, it, I added the tone of voice. <laughs> but that was, it was like, it was like, get off of this subject of love. Let's move on to more important stuff. But you need to underscore this verse. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Jesus himself made it the yoke of his ministry. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. All the disciples and apostles got it. It shows up in James. It shows up in Peter. It certainly shows up in Paul. It shows up in all of the disciples of Jesus and their writings. And here it is again. Under these circumstances, grave and influential as they are, what does Paul say? This is what they're doing. Listen, don't lose sight of what's most important. This is our charge. And the goal, the objective, the bullseye, the purpose, the focus of this charge is love. There you have it. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. What kind of love? It issues from a pure heart. A good conscience and a sincere or unhypocritical the word is hypocrite, with a negative A on the front, like theist, atheist. Unhypocritical faith. Notice what he says in verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, in other words, they have taken their sights off the target. By, and that's what it means. By missing the target, some have wandered away into vain discussion that is futile. It doesn't produce anything. It chews up all your time. It wastes all your energy. And you have nothing to show for it. That's vain. That's futile. That's why when I was in high school, if somebody said, you're vain, they'd say, you're, you're consumed with yourself, and it's a foolish objective and goal because it's not going to win you anything. That's what they meant. 
desiring to be what? Teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is what sometimes people call legalism. And it is just so natural for us to turn from the gospel, turn from love into legalism, because it gives us a sense of security. I have seen people in the face of fears about false teaching leave the center piece of the gospel and move to legalism. Start becoming very fastidious about all the kinds of things that they don't do and becoming critical of other people who don't live up to the law that they so fastidiously fulfill. And you know what happens? You shrivel up inside. You become fixated with doing all the right things and avoiding all the wrong things. It's very precise, don't get me wrong. And it can make you feel really good when you're, when you're on your game and you're doing all the right things. But you won't be following Jesus. You won't. You'll be like the people in the parables that Jesus showed us. Like the people who went around the man who was lying by the side of the road wounded, and the priest and the Levite steered their way away from that wounded man because of the issue of blood that would have made them unclean according to the law and therefore unable to present themselves at the temple. And they could go around him and ignore him and leave him to die with a clear conscience because they followed the law, Jesus said. But then a Samaritan, somebody who didn't follow the law perfectly, you know, like a Mormon, a Mormon came along, Jesus said. A Mormon? Or a Muslim? When Jesus held up a Samaritan, he was holding up something that the Jews felt were just as wrong and backward and moving in the wrong direction and that they detested. And Jesus holds him up and says, now here's, here's love. Here's an example for you to follow. You see, love will never reach its potential in fact, it will always be kept in a little crystal box on the coffee table where it's admired and talked about and pointed to. But it will never find working clothes for day-to-day -day living if it is circumscribed by the law and not the heart of God. 
Now, verse 8, we know that the law is good. And in verses 8 through 10 and 11, Paul's going to kind of qualify. Listen, I, 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 the law, that is the Torah, the instruction of God is good. If it's, he says, if it's used lawfully, <laughs> which I thought was kind of humorous. Here's what he says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or appropriately. Understanding this, understanding this is how you use it lawfully. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Who are the just? Well, those who are saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by their lawfulness, but by Jesus Christ. It's laid down for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, or those who trade in slaves, liars, perjurers, and whatever else, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul says this gospel stands up to all that false teaching which is putting so much emphasis on following the law and identifying the lawbreakers. And Paul, basically, he gets graphic and gives a lot of specificity, but he says everybody who is a lawbreaker or sinner is in this camp unless they're saved by grace through the gospel that is faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Actually, um, a violent man. It is a stock expression for hubris. Angry, insolence, and arrogance. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, I was ignorant, but I was a sinner. And the grace of our Lord, this is the key verse now, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then there's no but. There's no qualification. He doesn't water anything that he said down. He breaks out into a doxology Look at verse 
17, to the king of, the, of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here's what he's saying. Verse 15, verse 15, he says to Timothy, this is ground zero. This is the saying that is so trustworthy that you should have great confidence in it. You bank on this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then what does Paul say? Among whom I am the foremost. I am the worst. He even detailed what he did just before this. He still sees himself saved by grace after all these years. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't qualify. He could have left that out, couldn't he? Did he have to be so transparent? Did he have to bring his past into it? He had to show Timothy, Timothy, we never outgrow what God has done for us. Yes, he's done all of this. He's entrusted me with this very gospel. But don't forget who I was. Because between who I was and who I am today and what God is still doing in my life right now, you see the glory of God's grace. You see the gospel at work in me. And that's what he says in verse 16. He goes, to the grace of God, he says, it's just expansive and so abundantly overflowed me. Then he says, don't forget, this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Who are those sinners? They're the sinners that the law is condemning that he outlined in the previous verses in great detail. And here now he says, I'm the foremost. And then he goes on to verse 16. And this is the vocational part. The grace, the gospel, the vocation. He says in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, just catch this. Where is God doing his miracles? Don't we want to see miracles? Absolutely. We want to be able to point to those miracles. You want miracles? There's a miracle. Bonafide. Look at it. Now believe in God. Join us. <laughs> right? Yeah, I want God to kick the doors down on this world, you know? I want him to make a huge splash. But do you know how he's doing it? In Paul and in Timothy. That's what he says in verse 16. Don't miss it. He says, I am the staging ground of God's greatest miracle at the turn of history. I am the miracle of God. 
His grace working in me, Him saving me. And Timothy, I am an example of God's vast, expansive, unending grace. His patience, His tolerance, His love. I am an example. And this kind of an example is, it is a proof. I am a proof. This is the word example that is used when you validate something and show it to be the real deal, to be true. Like a coin. Is it authentic? And they would prove it. And that's the word that's used here. And Paul says, I'm a proof of what God's doing. You can see him at work in me. And Timothy, this is that others may see that work and believe. You see, that's what inspiring Christ-likeness is all about. Just what Paul is talking about here. The heart and soul of the gospel in Christ Jesus, saving sinners. And in that, embracing God's grace through love and faith. So that in our lives, each and every day, each and every day, we are staging grounds for the miracles of God, the spectacle of salvation. If you begin to see yourself a little bit that way, I know that, that just seems too high, too lofty. What, me? It just begins right where you're at. How you talk, how you see the world, how you hope, how you pray, how you help others, how you care. You don't measure the impact by your ability to measure it. It's in the hands of God. But when we begin to live that way, then you become, I become, and we as his church become an outpost for the kingdom of God. Do you know how I came to Christ? I told you I made that decision on a canal bank, but it wasn't in isolation. It wasn't because I was taught every objection to the Bible and then that was entirely refuted chapter and verse. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't even know who the Apostle Paul was. I didn't. It was through people who loved me and their lives had credibility because they lived them for Jesus Christ, and I knew that. Were they perfect? No, that wasn't what mattered. They were still different. They had soul, they had heart, they had spirit, they had joy. The law doesn't produce that. 
The flesh doesn't produce that. Paul says that in Galatians. What produces it? The Holy Spirit produces it. When you are filled with that spirit, you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Who is the spirit but the representation and power in our lives of Jesus Christ? That's the theology of the New Testament. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. You see somebody living like that, and your eyes are going to pop, and you're going to say, I want to be like that. I want what that person has. And you don't do that all in one fell swoop. You do it a moment at a time, a decision at a time a step at a time, a smile at a time, a trust in the Lord at a time, a prayer at a time, inspiring Christ-likeness, showing others Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has truly shown himself to you, and you're inspired. Will you stand? I'm going to pray, but when, I, um, when, I, when we say amen, I'm going to be up here along with the pastoral staff, uh, elders, spouses. If you would like to pray, we invite you to come. What would you want to pray about? Well, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. God is present, and he's been speaking, probably using language that is tailored to your heart in a way that my words may not be able to to speak. And if God's been speaking to your heart, don't, don't rationalize that away. If he's drawing you to him and you need to make some choices, and you'd like to pray about those choices, we invite you to come and pray with us. Maybe it is to say, Lord, you be, you be Lord of my life. And if that's the prayer of your heart, we invite you to come. Maybe you want to pray for someone else and intercede. Whatever the prayer, we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for our forebearers and fathers and mothers who live by faith thank you for your son Jesus Christ thank you for your Holy Spirit thank you for changed life new life life everlasting thank you for being the hero that we can be so proud of because no one reaches down like you in Jesus name we pray and all of God's people said God bless you.